0: And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. This is the glorious good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would stun us all somehow this morning in the foolishness of preaching by your spirit, through your word, would you cause Jesus, the living, risen Jesus, to be set before our eyes? Lord, come and help us by your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, by now, you certainly know this is Easter Sunday. <laughs> this is Resurrection Day for the Christian Church, day of celebration. And uh, as you think about it, I want to encourage you to think um, in terms of three questions, let me just give you, not surprisingly, three questions, three things uh, to, to think about. And I suspect that the first of these and the second of these will, and maybe all three, will be fairly obvious to you. But I, I really do want for us to reflect upon them again because, you know, we have these little, these little parables, these little witticisms, these little sayings that sort of get at things. One of them is, you know, sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees. I don't want you to get lost in the forest. I want you to see the trees here. And and we have this other little sort of proverbial witticism. Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. You know, things can become so familiar that even if you don't have contempt for them, they can become so familiar that their significance and their force and their power, that they're implications for your life you can lose you can lose sight of and I I I want for us this morning to just to think a bit about the significance of these things so here are the three questions and I invite each of us to think about them whether you're thinking about them maybe for the first time in a long time or the first time ever or since yesterday and it doesn't matter just want to encourage you to think about them. why are we here why are we here why are we here in this place Number two, what happened? What happened that accounts for why we're here? What happened that accounts for why we're here, that explains why we're here? And then third, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Why are we here? What happened that accounts for why we're here, and what difference does it make? Why are are we here at all? You who have been around Christ the King for um, a little while, if you've been here less than... Two or three months. Uh, this this may be a new thing for you, but you who have been around Christ the King for a while know that there are these two occasions in the course of the year. Uh, sometimes on other occasions, but there are at least two occasions in the course of the year where we wrestle around this church with with this question: Why are we here? Why do we do the things that we do? We ask that qu- question at Advent, during Advent and Christmas. Why, why are we doing this? I mean, why do we string lights? on our houses? Why do people do these things? Why do you put lights on your bushes? Why do you take, I mean, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of poor, unsuspecting, innocent pine trees of one kind or another get hacked down and distributed all across the United States so that people can buy them and take them into their houses and string lights on them. Why do we do these things? You know, the environmentalists must hate it. Think of it, tens, hundreds of thousands of poor unsuspecting pine trees that get chopped down in November and October so that we can have them in late November and throughout December. Why do we do that? Why are we here this morning? Why do we do this? Uh, this this day is a culmination, as Zach said before the service, is the culmination of a whole week of things. It's arguably a culmination not only of a whole week of things, but it's the the centerpiece of the whole of human history. Why? Why is the New York Stock Exchange closed on Friday? Did you know that? You ever wonder why do they close the New York Stock Exchange? Some buyer, some seller, some trader decided it would be a good idea to have an extra day of vacation and just sort of arbitrarily said, well, let's make Good Friday Good Friday. This is how Good Friday can be Good Friday. We get an extra day off of work on Easter weekend. You know, why? Why? Now, I don't, I don't want to belabor this. But it's, I think, important for us to stop and ask that question. Our culture is filled with so many distractions. There's so many opportunities for us to do anything but reflect and think. Uh, You know, the, the tournament is going on, right? And who doesn't want for David to take down Goliath? Right? Who doesn't want... For puny little butler, 4,200 students to take down mighty Duke and Mike Shashevsky, whose name nobody in this room can spell. (laughs) But everybody knows it. Culture is filled with so many distractions, so many things that occupy our attention. And we have precious little time to stop and reflect. Why do we do this, this on Easter? Why do we gather here? Why are we here? that leads, of course, to the second question and the answer. We do what we do on this particular occasion every single year. And in fact, in the Christian church, pretty largely, people gather on the first day of the week, every week on a Sunday morning to celebrate the reality of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Raised from death on the third day after his execution, never to die again. Other people came back to life. Lazarus did. Matthew's Gospel tells us that at the resurrection of Jesus, tombs were opened and people came out of those tombs. They went into the city of Jerusalem and they talked to people. That would have been fun to see. Other people have come back to life, but Jesus is the only person raised from the dead. After his death, on the third day after his death, the only person raised from death never to die again. Lazarus died again. Those people who came out of those tombs had to go through it all over again. Jesus is the only one dead, alive again, third day after he died. That's why we're here. And this thing that is described in each of the Gospels, this resurrection of Jesus, is at the centerpiece of the life of the church. You just can't account for the existence of the church apart from the resurrection. Now, people other, frankly, other than theologians and and New Testament scholars and and church fathers and, and that sort of thing, people other than church fathers and all the rest really have acknowledged this. I mean, if you go, if you, if you, if you drill back, if you go back to the early centuries of the church, and you read the early church fathers, whether Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, all the way down to the present, you read the fathers back then, the theologians, the, the historians, they will all tell you that the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of the life of the church. And that without the resurrection, you don't have the church. But it's a stunning thing when people who are not professional theologians, although we're all theologians because we all have a view of God, right? We do. So in that sense, we're all theologians. But people who are not professional theologians understand that without the resurrection, the church doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. A couple of examples. Flannery O'Connor, short story writer, wonderful short story writer, I tell folks sometimes when I read Flannery O'Connor, not that I don't i don't know her stuff that well, but I do like her and wish I did know it better. When I read Flannery O'Connor, I hear someone describing life as it is, but it isn't life the way I want it to be. When I read Wendell Berry, I see someone describing life as it isn't, not really, but as I really long for it to be. Flannery O'Connor, in her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Some of you know this short story. She has the misfits saying, Jesus is the only one that ever raised the dead. And he threw everything off balance. He threw everything off balance. Jesus, by his resurrection, by his power to raise from the dead, disrupted everything, everything that is predictable, everything that is expected. That is Flannery O'Connor's way of saying, if you don't have the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. You don't have Jesus. Jesus is another criminal on a cross, another opponent of the Roman Empire, dead, buried, story over. And Here's another Example, a classic example, John Updike. Some of you have read some of Updike's things. This is, many, many of you may know this poem. It's called Seven Stanzas at Easter. This is John Updike, modern-day novelist. Listen, Listen to what he writes. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The church will fall. And then listen listen to how he, he really zeroes in and focuses in on the fact that this resurrection isn't just some sort of philosophical speculative wish or hope in the minds of folks whose hearts were broken, whose disappointments were so enormous that out of that disappointment they had to create something that would give them hope. Listen to how Updike responds to that. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the 11 apostles. It was as his flesh, ours, the same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, And then, regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence. Making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back. Not paper mache not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience, our own sense of beauty, lest awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance, the remonstrance, the response of the one who was in fact raised. That's Updike. That's not the Apostle Paul. That's a 20th century novelist and poet. Now, I realize two things. Number one, my simply asserting the fact of the resurrection doesn't make it true. (laughs) And number two, and this is probably more important, it isn't to Updike or to Flannery or O'Connor that we look for assurances about the fact of the resurrection. I just suggest these two people to you as folks who are sort of outside our world who confirm what is at the heart of the Christian faith. And that is that Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is at the center of the life of the church. And if you take it away, the church goes away. It just goes away. That's why we're here. Because we believe this. We believe it. To be true. Now we believe it to be true because God in his goodness, in his providence has given us accounts of it. And then in his kind providence has given us all kinds of surrounding and corroborating evidence to support the accounts that by his kindness and grace, by the work of his Holy Spirit, we have in the four gospels. Each of the four gospels contains an account of the resurrection John's is just one. And we come to these gospel accounts, believing that God in his goodness has provided them for our well-being, for the benefit of his people, so that his people might have hope, and so that his people who given hope might see that hope extended out beyond them to people who are without hope. So, why are we here? Number one. We're here because number two, the resurrection really did occur. And in just making a couple of comments about John's account of this incredibly unique and, and marvelous and wonderful thing that has happened, you, you get from the force of the language in his gospel, John's sense of how stunning this thing was, how utterly shocking it was and how it stopped John in his tracks. It's what you see in verse 3 of the passage we read. These these disciples, Peter and John, like all of the other disciples, were were afraid. Their leader had been arrested. He'd been executed. Uh, He'd been taken away from them. They had witnessed it. They'd seen it. What do you do if you're the associate of a person who is condemned as a criminal and who is then executed? You duck, you run for cover, and that's what they had done. They were hiding. And then Mary Magdalene, sweet, wonderful, changed, transformed Mary Magdalene, comes with some of the other women to the tomb, sees that the stone is rolled away, goes back to find the disciples, reports to Peter and John what she has seen, and they come running. That's verse 3 and 4. They come running to this tomb to see whether or not what Mary has reported is in fact true. John's the sprinter. He gets there first. Peter's the the sort of elephantine fisherman, you know, just sort of lumbering along. Could probably go greater distances, but not at the same rate and speed. John gets there first, and look at verse four. John is the the other disciple who outruns Peter, reaches the tomb, he looks in, he sees the lying cloth, the, the cloths lying there, but he doesn't go in. He's stopped in his tracks. What is it that he sees when he looks into that tomb? Well, here is what he sees. If you look at the end of chapter 19 of John's Gospel, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and take the body away, and in preparing it for burial, they do what Jews of the day did. They would take strips of cloth, and the text tells us that in addition to wrapping the body in those strips of cloth, in among the folds of those strips of cloth were 75 pounds of spices, preservatives to keep the body from decaying. And so the body of Jesus was wrapped in this way and then placed on the ledge of a tomb where nobody had ever been laid before. And when John and Peter get to the tomb, John, getting there first, looks in, and he sees, the text says, sees these linen cloths lying there. Here's the force of the language. The force of the language is that the linen cloths were flattened out. They were smoothed out. It isn't that somebody came in, disturbed the body, ripped all of this clothing off of the body, and then carried the body away. It isn't that the Jesus having been brought back to life after death, ripped all of the clothes, the grave cloths off of his body, cast them aside, and then got up and walked out. No, that's not what they saw. They saw this encasement, these linen cloths with 75 pounds of spices woven into the fabric, into these folds of these grave cloths, simply collapsed in place. The body evacuated the grave cloths. in the miracle of resurrection in the miracle of resuscitation. That's what happened. And then Peter goes in, Peter looks into the tomb and he sees the linen cloths lying there. But then verse seven, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. That sounds like there was a head wrapping or something on the head of Jesus. It was taken off, it was folded, and then it was set aside in another place. But again, the force of the language. And by the way, there's a nice little book on the book table back there by a fellow named John Stott called Basic Christianity, in which he discusses these things. So I'm, I'm stealing what his ministry produced. He discusses these things. What Peter saw when he looked in is what John saw. These grave cloths collapsed in place, and then this separate headpiece, this separate head covering, which was, again, some strips of linen wrapped in crisscross fashion over the face of Jesus over Jesus' face in order to hold the jaw in place. That's the probable reason for wrapping the head specially so that the jaw would not drop open. And that head cloth was in a place by itself, meaning it was simply separated from the rest of the grave cloths, still retaining the crisscrossed Pattern that it was originally wrapped in. Gravecloths, headpiece, probably conforming to the profile of the face of Jesus. Gravecloths, little gap, headcloth on the slab where the body of Jesus had been placed. And the body now is simply gone. It's gone. That's the force of the language. And the effect on it, on on Peter and John, was simply to stop John in his tracks. And if you know a little bit about Peter, the impetuous, impulsive one, while John is stopped in his tracks by it, Peter has to go in and look more closely and sees what he sees. That's what the text tells us. And again, if you can... Take some time this week, just read the four accounts, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is John's account with just a couple of little details pertaining to the resurrection. Read the other gospel accounts and see how each of these gospel writers is like four different witnesses standing on street corners looking at the same event and identifying different pieces of the one story bringing for different reasons, different pieces of the one story to bear in their gospel accounts. So that's what happened. That's what the Christian church believes happened. That's what makes the Christian church the Christian church. That's what differentiates the Christian church from every other religion on the planet. There are many things, but this is certainly one of them. What differentiates Christianity is that its founder is still alive. Its founder is still alive. And that leads us then to the third question. So what? So what difference does it make? I can't believe I have to do this in about seven minutes. Are you going anywhere? So what difference does it make? Well, let me suggest to you that it makes a world of difference let me suggest to you that there are three things among many out of which which come out of this conviction about the resurrection here's the first thing what's the significance of the resurrection well the resurrection as somebody said already in the service today the resurrection is a validation it is a vindication of the person and the work of jesus Here's a way to think about it. It is the resurrection that makes Good Friday good. It's the resurrection that makes Good Friday good. Why? Because the resurrection vindicates Jesus as God the Son who has come into the world for the express purpose of living a life of perfect obedience in order to die a death as a substitute so that people can be forgiven. So that people can be forgiven. The resurrection is the validation of who Jesus is in his person and what it is that he did on Good Friday. Paul preaches this, in effect, in Acts. When he's in Athens, this epicenter of culture and learning he writes he preaches this this is act 17 verses 30 and 31 the times of ignorance god overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed paul's saying there's a day coming history is not this endless cycle of things it's not a slinky History has a trajectory. It's moving in a straight line. It's moving forward. And there's a day at the end of history. And on that day, judgment will come. God will enter into judgment. He's fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And he will do it in righteousness. And he will do it through a man whom he has appointed. Who is that man? That man is Jesus. And he has given assurance of this to all people by raising him from the dead. It's the resurrection that is the validation of the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And the wonderful thing, see, this is, this is, the, this is why the church loves the resurrection. The wonderful thing is that at the cross, that judgment that is out there has been intruded into the present. So that for those who cling to the cross, grasp the cross, they understand that judgment has already come. And this day that the Apostle Paul is talking about, they will never face. Because Jesus faced it for them. And what's the vindication and validation of all of it? It is the resurrection. Paul writes about it in Romans, the first seven verses. In his first seven verses of that letter, he's basically telling you what it is that he's going to tell you. Some of you have heard me say this. When you preach, you do three things. You tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, and then you told them what you've told them. You tell them what you've told them. In those verses, that's what Paul's doing. He's going to tell these people what it is he's going to tell them. And right in the center of it, in verse 4, he refers to Jesus who is declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. See, it is the resurrection that validates who Jesus is, that vindicates him in his work. But here's the second thing. The first thing the resurrection does is validate and vindicate who Jesus is and what he does. But here's the second thing, and I hope your hearts thrill at this. The resurrection of Jesus bodily, physically, materially, tangibly, Francis Schaeffer used to say, if you had been there on the first Easter morning, you could have taken a picture of it. It's what Updike is getting at when he says, if we're going to have a body, give us a real body. The resurrection of Jesus bodily, physically, materially means for the Christian the hope, the promise, the assurance of your own resurrection. Of your own resurrection. My body's breaking down. I was joking with some people about this yesterday. I've got one son in law, I've got another one coming in two weeks. They're both ripped. I ride my bike three or four days a week. I do tummy crunches. I lift weights. Why? Because I don't want to be a flabby old man when my two sons-in-law come to visit me. (laughs) The reality is, my friends, my body is wearing out. And here's the deal. There is something out there at the end of my life Remember the film Field of Dreams? Remember James Earl Jones? I want to go out there. I want to go out. I want to see what's out there. Kevin Costner says, It's my field. It's my field. I built it. I paid for it. I want to know. What do you want to know? I want to know what's in it for me. James Earl Jones wants to go. Kevin Costner wants to go. There is something out there in that cornfield. Look, the something is either a something, nothing, or it's a something, something. And Jesus Christ bodily resurrection tells me that the something, something is more something than I would ever have guessed or imagined. The resurrection of Jesus means the transformation of this poor, broken down, decaying bodily existence into something glorious, which is as well, though I can't fully understand this, as material and physical and spatial, in a sense, even more so, than is the physical and material and spatial that I experience right now. And, listen to this, never to die again. Never to die again. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? Read 1 Corinthians 15. Read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. I don't have time To go over all of the details of these passages, but especially in 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me just give you the gist of it. The Apostle Paul writing to people who have embraced this faith. They have embraced this resurrection. They have embraced this Jesus. Since they have embraced him, this Jesus who has come to conquer sin and death and overpower every enemy, this Jesus who is eternal life, this Jesus who promises this eternal life to all who will come to him and trust him, since they received that gospel, people have died and they don't understand. They don't understand. And Paul writes to reassure them. He's a very tender pastor. He's a very wonderful pastor. He writes to reassure them that even as Jesus has been raised from the dead, so will those who have rested in Jesus themselves be raised up. And he goes on to describe this incredible picture where a a powerful voice from the heavens speaks into our world, a world that is characterized by brokenness and by death, speaks into our world. He speaks with a loud, angelic, powerful trumpet-like call. And as he speaks, he summons those who have died out of the dust to be reconstituted, restored, to meet him as he descends in the midst of clouds of glory. That's in First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. This Jesus who has departed, returning in power and glory, and speaking with power, summoning what has died back to life as the author of life. As Jesus has died and been raised, so will those who have rested in Jesus. Be raised. That's the promise of the gospel. The promise, you know, the great divorce. Here's the great divorce. You wonder what the great divorce is? The great divorce is this. It's the moment of death when body and soul are separated from one another. They were created to be together. The great divorce is at death. The body and the soul are separated. The body goes into the ground. Here's the great remarriage. When body and soul are wed at the command of Jesus to live transformed physically, materially forever and ever. That's the significance of the resurrection of Jesus because he has been raised. Those who trust in him, look to him, will be raised. But there's more. Oh boy. There is more. The resurrection of Jesus means not only a vindication of him in his person and in his work, the resurrection of Jesus means not only that those who look to him and trust him and wait upon him will themselves be raised up to enjoy the kind of transformation that he experienced never to die again. The resurrection of Jesus means the restoration of the whole of the creation. That's what Glenn read in Romans 8. So many so many of us, I include myself, so many of us fear heaven. We fear it. Why? Because, now I got to be careful here, okay? I'm going to do this quickly and we can be careful later. Why? Why do we fear heaven? Because the images that we have of heaven, the images that we have of eternal life, the afterlife, all look like disembodied spiritual experiences. It's all angels sitting on clouds playing harps. It's singing in a choir all the time. My wife loves the prospect of singing in a choir. She's never sung in one. She likes that idea. Those are the kinds of images that are conveyed to us. But the idea... That the veil of death that is over the whole of the creation, this veil of death, this is in Romans 8, this veil of death that is over the whole of the creation, which explains why there are famines and earthquakes and hurricanes and these events that cause so much havoc and create so much loss. The idea that that veil of death would someday be lifted even as the veil if you will, the grave of Jesus no longer mattered. The idea that the creation would be set free from its bondage to decay is an idea we don't think about enough. Matthew 19. Amen. Matthew 19. Jesus has just interacted with a wealthy young man to whom Jesus has said, if you want to gain eternal life, sell everything you have, give away everything you have, and come and follow me. And he went away downcast. And in the aftermath of that, Peter or one of the disciples says, my goodness, my goodness, how is it possible for anybody to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says to Peter, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And then Peter says, Master, we have left everything to follow you. What then will we have? We've left everything to follow you. What will we have? And Jesus wonderfully, tenderly says to Peter, truly, Peter, I say to you, in the regeneration of all things, you will sit with me on thrones, you will rule, you will reign over a cosmos that is regenerated, that is born again and freed from the curse. What's waiting for you? If you're a Christian this morning, what's waiting for the person who has entrusted himself to herself or herself to Jesus, the renovation of the whole cosmos. This is not your best life now. This is not your best life now. The payoff, and there is a payoff, and I'm not ashamed to be a prosperity gospel preacher in that sense. There is a payoff and it's enormous and it is the entire renovation and reconstitution of the whole cosmos, the transformation of everything into a new heaven and a new earth. What does the resurrection of Jesus mean? It's the validation and vindication of who he is and what he did. It's the promise that you yourself will one day be renewed, will be transformed, and it is the promise that you will have a place to live, the new heaven and the new earth, and you'll enjoy it forever. Somebody said, and I don't remember who this is, I've had a hard time tracking it down, and if nobody else can find it, then I'll take credit for it. Somebody has said, when we taste the realities of the new heaven and the new earth, It will make the troubles of this life seem like a night in a bad hotel. Brothers and sisters, that is what awaits the Christian. And that is why the church today and until Jesus returns and sees him face to face, celebrates and will celebrate his resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these things. I pray for my friends. I pray for myself. I pray for us all that we would stop today and give some thought to these things. Encourage our hearts. Nourish our souls. Strengthen our wills. Fuel us. Fuel us. With the fuel of the living Christ that we might serve him well until he comes to get us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.